In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Okay, so what we'll go through today is all the preparatory stuff that we do before the offering of the Lamb. We're not going to talk about matins or vespers. We might talk about those at the end of the 12, like towards the end of the 12 weeks. But what we'll talk about today is what is liturgy? Why is it so important? That's the first part. And then we're going to look at the prayers that the priest says before he prepares the altar. Now, you wouldn't have heard these prayers before because they're said inaudibly. So if you open your book and you turn to page... 101. So page 101, where it says at the top, the Divine Liturgy of St. Basil the Great, the Offertory, or in brackets, the Prothesis. This is where the liturgy begins. Prior to that, you have Vespers and Matins. We're going to start from page 101. That's where we're starting today. Okay? So I think it's really handy to, to bring a book, if you own one or to buy one, so you could mark things in it. If something really strikes home with you, you could underline it or write some dot points. And I'm a big fan of this in church, more than the screens. Because I think this is nice because you could flick through and you could stop at a few words if you like them and have a read of them a second time. So if you have one of these, maybe bring them with you to liturgy just so it could um, maybe interact a little bit more with what's happening. Okay. So if we look at our handouts, I'll just put a psalm at the top. It's one of my favorite verses. It says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, this will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may behold the delight of the Lord, and that I may visit his holy temple. That's sort of like the mind frame, I think, that we'll start with, which is that we're happy to be in God's house. This is a nice place for us. As God's children, this is home. So I thought we'd start off with that verse just to keep in mind. Okay. I've got a few quotes which we'll read through. On what is liturgy, what's orthodox worship, just to set the scene. We'll do that for about 25 minutes, and then we'll go through the offertory praise. If you have any questions, just interrupt and we'll go through them, okay? So the first quote is by a priest called Father Alexander Schmemann. Father Alexander is an Eastern Orthodox priest. He lived in America. I think he died in the early 80s, um, and he was really big on liturgical theology. He wrote a lot of books on the liturgy. And that's where we're getting a lot of um, this material from, some of his inspiration there, okay? Does anyone know what the word liturgy means? I know Abba knows it. What's liturgy mean? The work of the people. So at a very basic level, the word liturgy means the work of the people, not the work of the priest and the deacon, a condition for the liturgy to be prayed is that there are three people present. The priest, or the bishop, either, a deacon, and the congregation. At least one congregation member. Because it's the work of the people. In the Coptic Church, and the Orthodox Church in general, we don't have private liturgies where a priest prays on his own in some corner. Okay? It has to be done in the assembly of the church. So, at a basic level, liturgy means work of the people. 
Let's let it go a little bit deeper. We'll read what Shmemon says. The original meaning of liturgy is that it meant an action by which a group of people became something corporately which they had not been as a mere collection of individuals. A whole greater than the sum of its parts. So as a whole, we are better than if we add John, David, David, Matthew, etc. As a whole, we're better. That's what he's trying to say here. Liturgy means more than common prayer. It means corporate action. Corporate means something communal, which we all do. Uh, there's more handouts coming, by the way. Uh, if you just share until they come, please. Okay. In which, this is important, everyone takes an active part, is a participant, and not only an attendant. So, really important to stress before we start looking at the liturgy, that we are all part of the liturgy. As a congregation, we don't just watch what Abuna and the deacons do. We're not watching a performance. Someone once said a funny quote. It's like the only thing... It's not, it wasn't a Coptic Orthodox person. It was in another tradition. But it's like the only thing missing from the liturgy is popcorn. And he said that because he felt that the people were just coming to watch. It's like we come, watch, and the critique. Oh, that was a nice sermon. He has a nice voice. The vestments were nice. The icons were nice. The church was clean. That's not really what we want to do. We want to participate and be active in the liturgy. The nature of this action is both corporate, so together, and personal. It's corporate because through the unity and faith of its participants, it realizes the reality of the church. What's the church? The presence of Christ among those who believe in him. The church is also other things, which we'll look at next week when we look at the first thing that the priest says. Okay? That's why it's corporate. It's personal because this reality is every time conveyed to me, given me for my personal edification, for my own growth in grace. So when we're looking at the liturgy, we want to look at God speaking to me. This only all makes sense when I believe that God loves me personally, and not just God loves people, but he loves me as Michael, he loves me as Fulano or Fulana. Okay? And lastly, through our participation in the liturgy, we become witnesses to Christ in our private and public life, responsible members of the church, or in short, Christians in the full meaning of the word. In other words, we come to the liturgy and we reorient what it means to be a Christian. And we're going to look at that. So for the next 12 weeks, we're going to look at how does the divine liturgy teach me how to be a Christian. If there was no Sunday school, if there was no youth meeting, and we paid attention to every word said in the liturgy book, we would have nearly everything we need to know as Christians. And it will actually teach us how to live as Christians, and we're going to look at that. All right? So if we turn on your page, Father Thomas Hopko, he said something great on Orthodox worship. Sometimes worship in some denominations, and I'm not making fun of any Christian denomination. We love and respect everyone. But sometimes it takes more of an entertainment approach. It's like we come to church and we're entertained. And you see that with a lot of churches that have heavy music focus. There's a band, there's a stage, there's a performance. And sometimes we think that's what we're missing. But if you're into stats, statistically that doesn't make any difference to church attendance, retention of youth, or commitment in the Christian life. There are a couple of books, if you're interested, I could um, uh, point you to those books that show that those things actually don't make any difference. It's actually the opposite. People are, in a, in a book called Churchless, it says why, what people want from church. They want awe, they want reverence, they want worship, not entertainment. It's really important. Just look at this small quote from Father Thomas. 
rather than being man-centered, Orthodox Christian worship is God-centered. So when we come to church, it's not about me being entertained. It's not about the liturgy doing it for me. I need to be able to pray, but it's not about entertainment, it's about worship. It's not about me, it's about God. Worship, as we read in Scripture, must be offered in spirit and truth and must be well-pleasing unto God, who is the only one we strive to please by our worship. We don't gather for worship to be entertained, to be relevant, to appeal to this group, to this group's taste at the expense of the whole. While humans have the need to worship, worship must offer a glimpse of the divine, not an affirmation of humanity. Worship must always be seen as focused on God, period, and not on me. That's really important because sometimes we think that the liturgy has to be relevant to everyone out there. Well, the church is a different place. I will talk about that in a little bit. Father Alexander Schmemann says, sometimes we get a bit insecure. We're like, why should I bring a friend to the liturgy? Aren't all these customs a bit weird? Has anyone ever been to a university graduation? Yeah? What, what do they do? They get a scepter, and they walk in in a procession, and all the PhD lecturers walk in with their beret, or whatever the hat's called, it has a formal name, and they walk in and they, like, with a lot of grace, and there's like a procession, and they stand, and they say an anthem, and they acknowledge the rightful owners of the land, and then they sit down, and there's a program. There's structure. When you go to a footy match, to the footy finals, what happens? They walk in. In soccer, they hold kids' hands. They walk in. In a procession, they stand. They sing. And there's a cup. There's some element of order, of ritual. It's actually not that foreign. We're just insecure. I'm insecure, too. I was at a, 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 a unit I was doing with people from other Christian denominations, and we're all sharing what we do. And when I shared what the Orthodox do in their worship, they were actually pretty interested. And I think they were sort of like, we've lost a bit of that. So I think it's important. Cool? Um, any questions so far? All right. Sorry, I'm just going to read some quotes and then we'll get into it. I just felt this is really important that we're just all on the same page before we start what happens up here. Okay? So the liturgy is more than the work of the people. It's a work of the church. It's an active participation in the life that we hope to have when we die in heaven. It's a taste of what happens in heaven. I'm not saying in heaven we're going to speak Coptic or we're going to do Tazbeha. It's, it's in a spiritual sense. It's a taste of what's going to be in heaven. Okay? Next quote by Father Alexander. The liturgy begins then as a real separation from the world. So the church is different to out there. If the church is different to out there, then I need to enter different in my mind, in my spirit, in how I approach this holy place. Okay? For example, the church is not a place where we talk or where we eat. The church is not a place where we just hang out if we can't find somewhere else. Everything here is holy. Okay? In our attempt to make Christianity appeal to the man on the street, we have often minimized or even completely forgotten this necessary separation. We always want to make Christianity understandable and acceptable to this mythical modern man on the street. And we forget that the Christ of whom we speak is not of this world, and that after his resurrection, he was not even recognized by his own disciples. So we're talking about something different to the world here, and that's okay. Okay? Now, sorry for this long quote. It's probably my favorite in this, all these um, quotes. That's why I put it here. 
When you walk into an Orthodox liturgy, you see beautiful icons. You see vestments. You see incense. You see chanting. You see symbols. Something's going on. You could summarize what's going on in one word, which is joy. And Father Alexander comments on this joy. He says, The liturgy, before anything else, is the joyous gathering of those who are to meet the risen Lord and to enter with him into the bridal chamber. Do you know what a bridal chamber is? It's where a husband and wife spend the wedding night, in like ancient words, where they spend their wedding night. That's a very intimate picture of what happens at the liturgy. And it is this joy of expectation and this expectation of joy that are expressed in singing and ritual, investments and in sensing, in that whole beauty of the liturgy, which has often been denounced as unnecessary and even sinful. Some people think, what's the point of all of this? Does this really have to be gold? Does the icon need to be this nice? Does the Buddha need to wear gold vestments? Well, the answer is no. You don't need to do anything. But if we look at, if we only did things that are necessary, then we wouldn't do much. And he explains. Unnecessary it is indeed, for we are beyond the categories of the necessary. Beauty is never necessary, functional or useful. And when expecting someone whom we love, we put a beautiful tablecloth on the table and decorate it with candles and flowers. We do all of this not out of necessity, but out of love. That's a beautiful quote there. That's one of my favorite quotes. Everything that we do in church is out of love, out of joy for God. So deacons, when we come to church, we have an option. I could just pull out my Tonya out of the Tonya bag that's been folded in a really bad way that might have a few stains, might be a bit short on me and just wear it. Or I could treat the liturgy the same way a bride and groom treat their wedding. Which is what? I'm going to come to the liturgy. My Tonya is going to be top notch. It's going to be ironed to perfection. Now, of course, someone might say, but isn't it about the inside? Of course it's about the inside. But just because it's about the inside, does that mean we neglect the outside? When a husband and wife or a fiancé or two people getting to know each other go on a date and they go, it's about the inside, it doesn't mean they rock up in their sports gear. Like we said, beauty is never necessary, but we're beyond necessary. Okay? The church is love, expectation and joy. It is heaven on earth according to our orthodox tradition. The interesting thing about heaven on earth is if we tell people the orthodox liturgy is heaven on earth and they go, okay, I'm going to come and find out if that's true. I'm going to come and stand in the corner and see what happens. And they're like, hmm, heaven on earth, huh? Then where is everyone? Ah, everyone's trickling in. Why is everyone standing like that? No one's concentrating. People are on their phones. I reckon they'll say, Really? Heaven on earth, or in Arabic they'll say, Yaragil. Heaven on earth, what are you talking about? That's something to think about. It is the joy of recovered childhood, that free, unconditioned, and disinterested joy which alone is capable of transforming the world. He's talking about that simplicity of a child where he's just, he or she is just happy to be in the presence of their parents. They're just comfortable, they're around, they're joyful, they're happy. That's the childhood simplicity that we need to approach the liturgy with. Not with adult serious piety where we ask for definitions and justifications and they are rooted in fear. Like, why do you do this? Do you have to do this? Where would you get it from? 
over questioning everything beyond reason, we're just sort of a bit scared. And he quotes um, a verse there. And the last sentence, as long as Christians will love the kingdom of God and not only discuss it, they will represent it and signify in art and beauty. So as long as we practice what we preach. St. John Chrysostom said, if all Christians in the world were Christians, then we would have no atheists. Something to think about. All right? So those quotes to start off with orient what we're talking about here. We're talking about a gathering of God's people, not the gathering of a priest and a deacon and we're here to watch the show. It's a gathering of God's people to worship together. It's the work of all of us in the church and we all have a role. It's a place of joy. And I like the image of the bridal chamber because if we think about the liturgy as a wedding, a bride or a groom, or a groom, let me say in today's world, won't come to their, liturgy late, uh, to their wedding late. I know the bride comes fashionably late, but ignoring that, they don't start the ceremony until they're both there. That's something for us, something that we have to always ask ourselves. If this is what we say about the liturgy, and if we believe it, then when am I here, and how do I approach the liturgy? Is it more like, oh, I've got to get up, I've got to run, did I make the gospel? Or what time's the gospel? That question is, is a bit of a bad one. Again, let's use the image of a husband and wife, or a dating couple. If they go on a date, they don't say, hey, what time's Maine's? I want to come for mains. It's not really appropriate. It's not really a relationship of love. A relationship of love is I'm there early and I'm looking forward to it. I know we're human, but we're aiming to get there. But while I'm aiming to get there, I should still be practicing what I should do, which is I'm at the liturgy, ideally a few minutes before they start, just to sit down, just to gather my senses, to put my phone on flight mode, not on silent, or turn it off, put it on flight mode, sit there for a bit, get my liturgy book, stand in the place where I feel I concentrate, get my mind in order, and then start. Okay? That's the first thing about the liturgy. The second thing about the liturgy is, if someone asks you, what does the Orthodox Church believe in? And you give them this book, they could find out. St. Irenaeus, first few centuries of Christianity, says, our opinion is in accordance with the Eucharist, and the Eucharist, in turn, establishes our opinion. Okay? We don't want to look at the liturgy as just a text, but it's an experience. In the 4th century in Jerusalem, if you wanted to become a Christian, during Lent, you would go to church and they would teach you everything about Christianity. Except one thing. What happens during the liturgy? So you would stay until the, the sermon and then you would leave. Okay? And then once you get baptized, you're allowed to stay for the rest. So even in the Eastern Orthodox Church until now, the deacon yells out before the creed, the doors, the doors. Because in the olden days, if you're not baptized, you would leave and they would lock the door. The rest of the liturgy is for those who are baptized, what we call the liturgy of the faithful. So what they used to do, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, who we'll read from in in a second, he used to explain everything about the Christian faith except what happens at that time when you leave. Why? Because in the Orthodox understanding, it's about taste and see. You know, in the book of Psalms, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's like, all right, you got baptized? Taste the liturgy, then let's explain it. And then after they're baptized, he spends a whole week explaining to them what they saw. And we're going to look at that for the next 12 weeks. We're going to look at how the liturgy of the 4th century is very, very similar to what we do today. 
So they'd spend the whole week after baptism and he'd be like, aha, you saw the deacon say, greet one another with a holy kiss. This is why you do it. You saw the priest say, lift up your heart. This is why you do it. You saw the priest say, the holies are for the holies. So in the Orthodox understanding, it's about experience. Taste and see. I'm going to skip St. John Chrysostom's quotes and we're going to come back to that in a sec. All right. Okay. So after matins, the first thing that the priest does is he puts on his vestments. Let's explain what the vestments are. Okay? Everyone happy for that? There's a photo there. The few things in that photo probably look a little bit unfamiliar. That's a priest who's fully vested in the Coptic rite. You would see he's wearing a tonia. He's wearing a stole in Arabic asadra, which comes, which you commonly see a priest wear. He's wearing the cape, which you put on a, on a groom when he comes to get married, or what they call a cope or a robe. Two things that you probably haven't seen before. The cuffs, okay? They're traditionally in the Coptic liturgy, but not used much anymore. And the belt or the girdle, okay? We're going to sort of look at why they're used. Some of them are practical, and we could get a, a spiritual contemplation. And then a contemplation on what they could mean and what it means to me. Okay. Now, to find out what these mean, what I did is I went to the ordination of the Coptic Pope. Do you remember watching Pope Tawadros' ordination? They sit him up at the front, and before they put a piece of clothing vestments on him, they say a psalm or a verse. So I got those verses. I put it under the appropriate vestment as a clue to what does this vestment mean? Okay, and what does it mean to us? Now. We're not going to go into the history of vestments. I've read a little bit on them. I don't know too much about them, but I'm sure we've taken, there's been some influence from the different churches, as a lot of churches have things in common. But let's just look at what happens and what it means. The basic thing that a priest wears is the tonia, or white tunic, which makes him the representative of each member of the faithful, because at baptism, everyone wears a white tunic. Everyone who has been vested in the white robe of the new creation and new life. All who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, as St. Paul says. So he's a representative of the whole church when he puts on the white. It's the baptismal robe. It's what the deacons also wear. It's the basic vestment of anyone who ministers the sanctuary. On top of that, you have the stole, which they call a sadra. A deacon's stole hangs on his shoulder. They used to hold up the stole in a call to prayer. So if the deacon says, stand up for prayer... He'll hold it up and he'll be like, stand up for prayer. So now we, the deacon sort of like stands here and grabs the microphone and is like, stand up for prayer. But in the olden days, he used to look at the people and say, stand up for prayer as a command. That's what they do. For the priest, the stole goes around his neck and hangs to the bottom. Okay? Let's look at the verse or the prayer or the psalm that they say when they put on the stole. Blessed be God who has poured his grace upon his priests like precious ointment upon the head, which comes down the beard, the beard of Aaron, which comes down to the edge of his garment as the dew of Hermon at all times. The, the stole is the most basic priestly vestment. When you see someone wearing a stole, you say, he's a priest. Okay? Any clues as to what this verse tells us about the stole? Who's Aaron? Moses' brother, yeah? Who else? 
He's a priest. Why would they say Aaron and oil in the same paragraph? Priests were anointed with oil as part of their consecration. Okay? So when, when they say, Blessed is God who has poured his grace upon his priests, like precious ointment upon the head, which comes down the beard, the beard of Aaron which comes down to the edge of his garments, while the stole also comes down to the edge of his garments. This stole represents the grace of the priesthood. The stole is given, not earned. So a priest is not a priest because he's a good guy. A priest is a priest by the grace of God given to him by the church, by the authority of the bishop who has authority from Christ to do that. The laying of hands. So when I say Abuna, Abuna is a priest because of the grace given to him by God. There was a heresy, I think it's called the, it starts with the, I forgot the name, just had a tip of, my, tip of the tongue syndrome, where um, some of the people thought that, so in times of persecution, some Christians worshipped idols and they came back, some of them were priests, and they thought that if the priest isn't holy enough, then the bread does not turn into the body. So the church said, mm. Big no-no. What happens on the altar has nothing to do with the state of the priest. Because a priest is not a priest by what he does in the inside. A priest is a priest by the grace given to him by God. Also, they say that the same way the good shepherd puts the sheep around his shoulder, the same way the priest as a shepherd has a stole around his shoulder as a reminder of that. Okay. The next thing that they give him is the cuffs or the sleeves. So when a priest is given communion, these long sleeves have a tendency of dropping into the pattern and touching the holy body. So practically, it's nice to tie it up. That's what the cuffs do. That's the practical reason of the cuff. If you look at the photo, so his, his uh, tunic is not really flowing down into the pattern, but also has a spiritual resemblance. The verses that they say, your right hand, O Lord, is glorified by strength. Your right hand, O Lord, has crushed the enemies. And with the strength of your arm, you have destroyed the adversaries. The right hand of the Lord has exalted me. The right hand of the Lord has strengthened me. The right hand of the Lord has done wonders at all times. Your hands have formed me and created me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me, and they shall be glad at all times. Psalms about hands. To explain this, St. John Chrysostom has a beautiful quote. When you see the priest administering the Eucharist to you, do not think that the priest does this, but consider rather that it is Christ you see stretching out his hand. That's nice. So when you see Abuna holding the cuffs, sorry, when you see Abuna's hands in cuffs, or sometimes their sleeves, okay, bishops usually wear the sleeves, not many priests wear the cuffs anymore. When you see that, you remember it's not Abuna's hands who are communing me, it is Christ himself who is giving me communion. These sleeves are a reminder that these hands aren't mine as a priest, they're Christ's. It's not I who bless, but Christ who blesses. It is not I who offer, but Christ who offers. It's not I who give communion, but it is Christ who gives communion. So when I see these cuffs, I remember that. Then you have the girdle, the belt. This, the verse they say is, Blessed be God, who has girded my loins with strength and made my paths blameless at all times. Generally, a belt is a sign of strength, obedience, readiness, tie about you go out to work, or submission. And as a reminder, it reminds the priest, he didn't choose Christ, but Christ chose him. So out of his obedience, he's going forth, which means 
He doesn't have any authority. The priest doesn't have authority as a priest. It's Christ's authority, not the priest's authority. So when you see the, the belt, you remember Christ called him. And out of obedience, he is going to minister. Finally, you have the big cape. In Arabic, it's called bornos, which um, the priest wears commonly on feast days. But he could wear them in any liturgy. It's fine. The verse is, My soul rejoices in the Lord, and my heart rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has clothed me with the gown of salvation, and vested me with the robe of gladness at all times. So the vestment covers the priest as a whole, everything, his arms, his back, the front. And it represents the flow of grace, the joy, peace, the beauty of the new world, the kingdom that Christ has granted us. And it reminds us that Christ has covered us when we were naked in our sin. Okay? They're the vestments. Yep. What about the pointy hat? So the crown. I attended an interesting lecture a few months ago which shows that we originally we didn't pray with anything in our heads, but I think that came later on. And it's a reminder of the crown that the 24 priests had on in the book of Revelations. So they had 24 golden crowns on their head. I don't know why the tail is there, to be honest. So I asked someone about the Coptic liturgy. He said, look, the Coptic liturgy is like a massive jigsaw puzzle. You don't have all the pieces, and you don't know what you're trying to put together. Because of various persecutions and things getting burnt, and it's hard to put everything together. It's hard for us to say exactly why everything happens. That's why I'm trying to avoid looking at every little movement of a buona and giving it an understanding. Let's look at the text and see what's it telling me as a Christian. Any other questions so far? Is there a reason why they don't wear the cross in that anymore? Is it just a convenience thing? Or? I don't know if it's a convenience thing or if it just fell out of use. I'm not really sure. But it's starting to come back. A lot of priests are starting to, starting to come back. It's interesting because in, like, originally vestments were very, very simple. They're just white. And in the very, very beginning, there probably wasn't many vestments at all. In the Old Testament, there are definitely vestments. But it's interesting because in most other... Orthodox denominations, the priest has to be fully vested all the time. So, you know, even if it's a camp liturgy, he has to come with everything. It's just an interesting side note. It is one. Yeah. It is one way to look at it, but because the church has sort of accepted that it's okay for a priest to pray without certain things, that's okay. It's not. It's not like the end of the world. Okay. So that's it for the vestments. So once he puts on his vestments, or while he's putting on his vestments, the deacons are chanting on him on page one hundred and one. Okay. It's called the hymn of blessing. Not going to look into it into too much detail, but since this is like the introduction, and next week we'll really get into exactly what happens when the priest chooses the offering. Whenever we go through the text, maybe put a triangle whenever you see a reference to the Holy Trinity. Throughout the Coptic liturgy, and this is one of the prominent things in the Coptic liturgy, there are heaps of references to the Holy Trinity. And next week we'll look at that point a little bit deeper. But the first thing that they say is, We worship the Father of light and his only begotten Son and the Spirit, the Paraclete, the Trinity, one in essence. 
The first thing that the deacons say in the liturgy is a glorification to the Holy Trinity. Look at that in a little bit more depth next week. And then as they vest, they say a beautiful hymn to the Virgin Mary, which we also say at weddings. Because originally, the wedding used to be prayed right before this part. So you would have matins, you would have the wedding ceremony, and then you would sing this hymn, Shere Mare, okay, which we sing on the way out, and then the liturgy would start, and the, the bride and the groom will stand at the altar and they'll commune together with that lefefa that you see them put on their hands. If you see it, the husband and wife at the wedding, they put a lefefa over their hands, they used to commune together with that. So that's just a bit of a, that's a few fun facts. Okay? So it talks about the Holy, it praises the Holy Virgin Mary, and then we get to page 104. So all those praises are on while the priest and the, um, puts his vestments on. Okay? Now, how to use this book. Anything in red is an instruction. Anything in italics is an inaudible prayer, which means the priest prays it secretly. Okay? In red. After this, the priest kisses the hands of his brethren, the priests, and asks them to absolve him and pray on his behalf. Whenever a priest or anyone goes up to a priest in a liturgy, you go, I have sinned, absolve me. Because the priest provides absolution. When a priest goes up to a layperson, he says, I have sinned, forgive me. So before the liturgy, sometimes you see Abuna giving a matanya to the people. As he's doing that, he says, I have sinned, forgive me. And the people reply, I have sinned, absolve me. You'll see sometimes a priest walking around the altar and him and the deacon bow down like that. As the priest bows down, he goes, I have sinned, forgive me, to a layperson. And a layperson reply, I have sinned, absolve me. Because the priest provides the absolution. Okay, or praise the absolution. Then he ascends to the altar, and the deacon ascends and stands before him, and the priest places the vessels before him and signs them three times. So this is the parcel that the vessels are in. So we're going to set up the altar today, just to see what it looks like. Okay, that's present here in front of the priest. Okay, and he says a prayer, which is called the prayer of preparation. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a such a very, very nice prayer. Um, beautiful prayer. So we'll read it, and then I'll show you how this is set up. Highlight any nice parts, anything that stands out. O Lord, who knows the hearts of all, who is holy and who rests in his saints, who alone is without sin and who has power to forgive sin. So I'm saying... I'm praising God. I'm saying, God, you don't have sin. You're the only one who can forgive sin. And then I say, you, O Lord, know my unworthiness. So the priest is speaking on his behalf. I'm unworthy and I'm unprepared and I'm not meet. Meet means fitting or worthy for this, your holy service. And I don't have the countenance. Countenance means I don't have the face. In slang, I don't have the guts. That's what we would say now. Or the boldness. To draw near and open my mouth before your holy glory, but I, I will. Why? But according to the multitude of your tender mercies, pardon me a sinner. But because you are merciful, please forgive me. And grant to me that I might find grace and mercy at this hour. What do you think of that prayer so far? Any thoughts? It's deep. What attitude is the priest approaching the altar with? Humility and repentance. Now, 
the, the main question for us is, what does this mean to me? This is a clue to me. I need to also approach church with this humility and repentance. So Abuna doesn't walk in in a way where he's just familiar with everything here. It's like, yeah, I've done this before. There's a beautiful quote that once some, a priest told me. He says, he said, he said, put this on your cupboard where you put your vestments. Pray this liturgy as if it's your first and last. Pray this liturgy as if it's your first and last. If you speak to anyone who's joined the faith as an adult, they'll say the first time they attended the liturgy, it was amazing. Okay? For us, we're human. Sometimes we don't get that feeling, but it's not about the feeling. If it comes, glory be to God. If it doesn't come, double glory be to God. It's okay. It doesn't mean we act any differently. Okay? So we should try pray this liturgy as if it's my first and last. So I'm actually coming to the altar, or I'm coming into church, and I go, God, I'm a sinner, but because you're merciful, pardon me a sinner. And he says, and send down to me strength from on high. So the priest is not doing this out of his own strength, but strength from God. That I may begin and make ready and accomplish your holy service after your pleasure, according to the ascent of your will, for a sweet savour of incense. In the book of Psalms, let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So God smells our prayer as something sweet. Yea, our master, be with us. Be a partner with us. Bless us. So I'm not doing this liturgy. Christ is doing this liturgy, not me. Christ. Turn the page. For you are the forgiveness of our souls, our sins, the light of our souls, our life, our strength, our boldness. And unto you we send up glory, honor, and worship, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and all times, unto the ages of ages. Amen. Another triangle for another reference to the Holy Trinity. Okay? As he's doing that, as he's doing that, he sets up the, the altar. Okay? So I'll just show you what happens. The first thing the priest does on anything in the altar is he always blesses in the name of the Trinity. So he goes, in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Blessed be God, the Father, the Pantocrator, and he undoes a knot. So there should be three knots at the beginning. One knot. Blessed be his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not two. Blessed be the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete. Not three. We say that blessing all the time. At a wedding ceremony over the rings, we start off with that. When Abuna prays on a cup of water to bless your house or your car, he says that. Okay? And then there's two more knots. Whenever the priest says those three blessings, he always finishes off by saying, glory and honor, honor and glory to the all holy trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, now and forevermore and unto the ages of ages. Amen. So you know, at the beginning of Tai Shori, when Abuna goes to put incense in the Shoria, he does the same five crosses. Blessed be God the Father, three crosses, sorry. Blessed be God the Father, the Pantocrator, blessed be the Holy Spirit, the Blessed be his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Blessed be the Holy Spirit, the Paracletes. That's three incense. Glory and honor. Honor and glory to the All Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we'll go through that later. And then he sets up. Very simply, he gets the chalice. He puts it in the throne. The throne is probably the latest addition to the, to the vessels because, we, like I was speaking to Dr. Johanna at the Theological College, who's researched a lot of this, and he can't find any evidence for it apart from the last few centuries, maybe because a chalice fell or maybe to keep it secure, I'm not too sure. But he puts the throne, the chalice in the throne. Okay? And then you'll generally find a veil as a circle in it and then one more veil on top. Okay? Then what else do we find? We find 
the plate, which is known as the pattern, okay, we find a little white circular cloth, which we place on the pattern, and we'll talk about that in about four or five weeks when we take it off, okay? And then we have what's called the star or the dome. Practically, this is to stop the lefefa or the corpora or the veil from falling onto the body. Contemplatively, there was a contemplation that these are the arms of Joseph, of Arimathea, and Nicodemus as they laid Christ to be buried. Some people look at this as the manger, and this is the star. Different contemplations. Okay? So they have this, and we have the spoon as well, which we'll just keep here for now. Okay? Then you have a, a red lefefa, or red corp veil, sorry, which we'll look at in a second. Then he takes out the remaining veils. Okay? And then we have the big veil here, which is called the prosferian. Prosferian comes from a word which means offering. We'll talk about that in about a month as well. We'll just keep that on the side for now. Okay? With these. And then, why, why the priest lays out the veils like this? I'm not sure. It's not like, oh, it has to be like this for this reason. This is a tradition, but we can draw some simple spiritual meanings from that. So he puts one on the left, one on the right, like this, and then one here. What do you see? Three triangles, reference to the Holy Trinity. Okay? I read somewhere that originally it was just a veil to the left and the right. I'm not sure how accurate that is. Like I said, it's a bit of a massive jigsaw puzzle. Okay? And then he puts the red veil over here. Why? This is where the pattern will go. So as the priest is breaking the bread and later breaking the body of Christ, if any little particles of the body, what they call, they call any little particle they call a jewel, that's how we refer, we refer to it, if it falls, the priest can easily see it on the red veil and just pick it up. Okay? We have the spoon, which we place here. Okay? You have one veil which we fold back to front, and we put it here because later on we will do this. So we keep it like that. And we have another veil which we place like this because the priest will use it. So that's the priest preparing the altar. Okay. Generally, sometimes it's done before, um, during matins or even before matins. Generally, it's done right before the liturgy. Okay. After that, the priest says a prayer for after preparation. We have a prayer for everything in the Coptic Church. Before preparation, after preparation. Okay? O Lord, you have taught us this great mystery of salvation. You have called us your lowly and unworthy servants to be servants of your holy altar. So in other words, I am lowly and unworthy and you have called me to serve your holy altar. O our Master, you make us worthy. So I'm not worthy, but please make me worthy. In the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish this service... So without falling into condemnation before your great glory, we may bring to you a sacrifice of praise, glory, and great beauty in your sanctuary. I just want to stop at that word beauty, which we spoke about. Of course, the emphasis is on beauty in here. It doesn't mean we neglect the beauty out here. Which means that the church in general should be a place of beauty. So usually the veils are ironed, they're washed, 
The altar table with the cloth on top is pristine and perfect. The church is set in order. Everything in church should be top-notch. Now, someone might say, but isn't this a bit too much? Why is it gold? Shouldn't we just use something simple? St. John Chrysostom says, God doesn't want golden chalices, he wants golden hearts. He's saying that to people who are obsessing about this and forgetting everything else, such as love and ministry to the poor. But we've got to ask ourselves something in the 21st century. When you go to any nice building, it's clean. Our lives are clean. We live in an organized country. We live in a place where if we're going to buy something from any shop, we buy something nice. So when it comes to church, why should it be any different? That beauty is very, very, very important. Like Father Alexander Schmemann said, nothing is necessary, but we're beyond necessary. Everything should be clean. So, for example, if you're a deacon and you come to church early, as you should, you need to make sure that the, the altar is pristine, perfect, like 100% as much as possible. If a veil is dirty, then ask the priest for a blessing and go wash it. Okay? And the rest for all of us who are not deacons in the church. If I'm walking out of church and there's a liturgy book just left like that, I should take it and put it back. All these little things are important. Okay? O God, who gives grace, who sends forth salvation, who works all in all, grant, O Lord, that your sacrifice may be accepted before you for my own sins, and watch this, and for the ignorance of your people. For my own sins and for the ignorance of your people. In other words, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing something wrong. I have no excuses. For the ignorance of your people means they might not really know what you're doing. The the priest is giving the people the benefit of the doubt. The priest is affirming in front of Christ that he is no better than anyone else. That's why he calls himself a lowly servant. He's not walking in saying, yep, that's it, I'm doing this, I'm the best. He's walking in saying, I'm the worst here. Please, God, you know how bad I am. Please send me grace. And he says, for my own sins and for the ignorance of your people. For behold... It is pure according to the gift of your Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom the glory, honor, dominion, and worship are due unto you with him and the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, is one essence with you, now all times unto the ages of ages. Amen. Triangle, another reference to the Holy Trinity. Okay? After that, he kisses the altar, and they go and pray the Ekbeya prayers, which we won't talk about now. Then he washes his hands. As he washes his hands, it says here three times. By three times, it means I'm just like one, two, three. Practically, for hygiene, because, or to keep his hands clean, but he's about to touch the bread in the offering. But there's also a spiritual contemplation behind it. He says three verses. On the first wash, you shall sprinkle me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. We all know that, Sam. Second time, make me hear joy and gladness to the bones which you have broken, Mary Joyce. Third time, I will wash my hands with innocence and go round about your altar, O Lord, that I might hear the voice of your praise. Three times. Now, if we just pull out our handout, please. The last quote. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, 348 A.D., This is the first paragraph for the explanation that he gives to people who are baptized in the week after their baptism. He says to them, watch what year this is, 348 AD, roughly. 
He says, you saw the deacon giving to the priests and to the presbyters who stand around God's altar water to wash their hands. So this is not something new. This was not at all done in order to cleanse them from some bodily defilement, for they did not enter the church at first being bodily defiled. The washing of hands was a symbol that we all must be purified from all our sins and transgressions. We wash our hands because they are considered to be symbols of our actions. In this way, we declare that our actions must be pure and blameless. Did you not hear the blessed David indicating this very fact mystically by saying, I will wash my hands with... I wash my hands with those who are innocent, and so I will stand around your altar, O Lord. The washing of the hands, therefore, symbolizes abstinence from sin. So for me, as a lay person, when I know Abuna is washing his hands, I think about the spiritual meaning for this. So rather than just watching Abuna wash his hands and say, that's nice, I could think about it and say, well, what does this mean for me? Okay? Now, I said I'll come back to St. John Chrysostom's quotes. They're a bit long. I might just pick a few. Let's leave the first one. We could read that later. The second one. He's emphasizing that we're in heaven. Whenever you hear the words, let us pray all together, or in other words, Ishlil, whenever you see the curtains draw up, so Abuna has opened the curtains by this stage, then consider that heaven is let down from above and that the angels are descending. So for us, if we really believe that we're in heaven, there's two questions we ask ourselves. How am I approaching the liturgy? What am I doing when I'm here? So I can't approach the liturgy like I approach anything else and expect a benefit. So what does this mean practically? The church has given us a suggestion, like, hey, why don't you do nothing for the night leading up to the liturgy? So I'll remind you by that by telling you don't eat. It's actually don't eat and don't do anything. You just... Sit still. You could pray, have some quiet time, etc. The night before the liturgy, if my mind is busy with a thousand things and I'm out and about, I just come home and I crash and I wake up in the morning, it's not the same. Of course, we're human, we live in a world, sometimes we have things to do on Saturday night, but surely not every Saturday night. And surely even if we do, we have some time before we sleep to just gather our thoughts, to pull out Coptic Reader and to find out what the Gospel is about tomorrow. To maybe pray the prayer of preparation, if you like it. You could print it off and put it in your prayer corner and pray it the night before. To do some self-examination, try approach the liturgy differently and see what happens. And in the morning off, try your absolute best not to go on Facebook. Okay? I'm always guilty of, you know, when you get up in the morning and doing one of these. Well, let's avoid that as much as we can and just come to the liturgy clean, empty, nothing. The liturgy is the first thing that I do. They always say, like, like advice to parents who have kids, just make sure your house is calm on the way out to church because it could be a bit frantic, you know, kids trying to get into cars and stuff. Because if it's so, like, tense and, come on, let's go, let's get dressed, and then they come to the liturgy inside, they're already disturbed. Okay? So that's something from that, um, from that quote. But sometimes we say, I'm a sinner, why should I come to church? Well, St. John Chrysostom says nothing should stop you from coming to church unless you're formally kicked out. Okay, he says, You will say to me, I'm a sinner, I cannot come. Then if you're a sinner, come, that you may cease to be one. So if you're a sinner, then come, so you could stop being a sinner, because that's what the liturgy does. Tell me, who is there among men without sin? 
Do you not know that even those close to the altar are wrapped in sins? So the priest standing at the altar is a sinner as well. For they are clothed with flesh and folded in the body. As we also who are sitting and teaching upon this throne, so he used to teach from a throne, are entangled in sin. But not because of this do we despair of the kindness of God, and neither do we look at, on him as inhuman, etc. Okay? Finally, we'll finish off here. He says, don't leave church until you've been asked to leave church. I didn't get the full text. This is a huge document where it was a feast day of a saint in Constantinople, and he was really, really upset. Why? Because no one was there. Now, at that time, the equivalent of the footy was the horse race and chariot races and dancing. So he blasted them the next time they came to church. If you want the sermon, I could maybe put, give the link to Abba and he could put it on the page. It's really long, but he rips into them in true St. John Chrysostom fashion. He says to them, what stops you from coming to church? A little bit of mud on the road, but when you go to the theatre and it's showering rain, they have to force you to leave. Or you come to church... And you don't know who Elijah is, who's Obadiah, who's Ezekiel, yet you can speak of the horse races and the dancers with more eloquence than the orators. I'll put this in our common terminology. Do you know the 12 disciples? Do you know the prophets, the major prophets? Do you know what the message of the New Testament is? I might say no. All right, name me the footy clubs. Name me all the captains. Who's the first draft pick? Give me stats. Who's playing tomorrow? Who lost? Why? What's the best restaurant on Urban Spoon? That's where I'm guilty. What's the best restaurant on Urban Spoon? Or anyone who's finished year 12. What chapter is calculus in your methods textbook? 13. Got it. He's, he's saying something sad but true. He says to them, do you even know the 12 disciples? So this is part of a very long sermon, which I could send to you, but I just picked out some of the nicer parts. Okay? The final part, and I, in the part before it, he talks about, if you leave church before Abuna says, go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you, you are worse than a fugitive. Okay? That's what he says. He says, you have entered the church, O man. You have been held worthy of the company of Christ. Go not out from it unless you be sent. Unless the priest says, go in peace, then don't leave. Don't run out to grab a sandwich. You'll still be there when, when, the, when the priest finishes. It's okay. Don't go out and just chat because the communion line is long. Stay and pray. You are, if we truly believe what we're saying, then we are in the presence of Christ. The real presence of Christ. He's not symbolically here in the bread. He's actually here. And if I've had communion, I'm waiting in my pew, singing the songs of the praises of the deacons. While everyone else communes, I should be praying because Christ is there. I'm sure if anyone came up and said, do you want to meet Christ? Everyone would say, yes, well, he's there. For if you go out from it without being sent, you will be asked the reason, as if you were a runaway. You spend the whole day on things which relate to the body, and you cannot give a couple of hours to the needs of the soul. You go often to the theatre, and you will not leave there till they send you away. But when you come to church, you rush out, before the divine mysteries are ended. That's pretty confronting, I think. Okay? Any questions on that? We're all right with that? Okay? So I know today had a lot of quotes, but just today I really wanted just to set the scene of what we're going to talk about. 
Next week, we'll launch straight into the liturgy. We're going to look at the offertory, what Abuna does and the deacons when they offer the lamb, what this means for me and you, and then we'll move through the liturgy over the next 12 weeks. Okay? Um, if you have any questions, feel free to hang back and ask if you don't want to ask it publicly. But we'll just stop there. Um, and next week, we'll go on to the offertory. Um, if you missed out, we have some liturgy books here to purchase. I highly recommend that you purchase one to highlight and to write in it and to come to church with this liturgy book and to use it. Okay? As we go through it, you'll be more familiar with how to use it. If you don't want to buy one, that's fine. You could um, grab a liturgy book from the back and just put it back when you're finished. Okay? Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. We'll just pray before we leave.